0: Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. I'm Megan Cole, your host. And Writing the Coast is your destination for interviews with the authors and illustrators whose books have been shortlisted for the annual prizes. I hope you've been enjoying this season's conversations as much as I have. It's been such a pleasure chatting with these amazing people and I can't wait to share more with you in the coming months. Now, speaking of amazing people, I need to let you know that my guest for this episode doesn't live in British Columbia or the Yukon. I thought I should get that out of the way before we get started. She did, however, team up with celebrated BC illustrator Julie Morstead to create the book It Began With a Page, How Gio Fujikawa Drew the Way. The author I'm talking about is Keo McClear. I need to make one more confession. Keo is one of my favorite writers. Some of my favorite books include her children's books, like The Fog, Yak and Dove, Spork, and Julia Child. Kyo and Julie have worked on several books together, including Bloom, a story of fashion designer Elsa Schiaparelli, and Julia Child. For it began with a page, the pair took on the true story of Gyo Fujikawa, whose illustrations have inspired artists for decades. But her story has not really been told. When we spoke, Kyo said that she would have a hard time reading from this book without being able to show you the illustrations. So this episode will not start with a reading. But instead, Keo starts this one off with telling us a little bit about this book.
1: Um, it began with a page a story of a illustrator author named Keo Fujikawa. And I'm going to get these dates wrong, but she was born at the beginning of the 1900s, and she lived in... Almost nine, I think, 90 plus years, and she was a real trailblazer. She was a um, second-generation Japanese American um, who grew up in uh, on the West Coast um, and had, you know, all the struggles one can imagine. When uh, somebody at, at that point in history would have um, with racism um, and just her family were migrant workers, and she they struggled a lot, and she was quite. Remarkable because she was um, one of the first Asian-Americans to go on to study art at Cal Arts. I mean it was it's now Cal Arts Uh, It was called Shoe Art Academy back then and she studied art and she really wanted to be an artist and so we decided to tell the story because um, what happened with Yo was eventually she became a very important children's book illustrator. And I think a lot of people know her work, have seen it or have, you know read it as children or have had their children read her work, but very few people know who she actually was. In fact, most people think assume that um, she was a he. Anyway, uh, she published mostly in the 50s and 60s and then continued a little bit into the 70s and 80s. But her kind of really... Uh, important books kind of came out in the 60s and one of the books that she wrote was a book called Babies which was published in 1963 and what made it so remarkable was that it was the first book to, to kind of break the color bar or the kind of color line in publishing because it showed um, interracial children kind of frolicking on the page and um, didn't make any kind of like kind of didn't remark on that in any way. It wasn't a story that was meant to illustrate anything about kind of race relations, but it was just children at play. And that might seem kind of like benign now or something familiar now, but back then it just wasn't done. And she was the first person to really do this. And she actually met a lot of resistance. Her publisher said, you know, they didn't want there to be black babies and white babies kind of playing together on the page because it would kill sales in the South because it was the height of Jim Crow. And she really stood her ground, and she fought for this book to be published, and it went on to be published. Um, and it's it did remarkably well. It sold millions of copies. It's now, I think, sold 2 million copies. And it became really important to a lot of children growing up. And actually, a lot of her work became very important. And I think, for me growing up, um, I remembered seeing her work, because I do, I do remember this feeling of seeing Asian kids on the page for the first time. Um, and it was a, a book she'd done that was a, a kind of compendium of stories. And I, I don't think I ever remembered her name until much later when I realized that her name was very much like my own. Um, Gio and Kio are very similar. And I kind of put her name in a pocket in my mind and kind of forgot about her. But then when I became a picture bookmaker, I just was really I remained curious about her. So um, I wanted to tell her story. How did that
0: process start for you to tell her story?
1: Well, so what happened was that I just started to... Julia and I have done a few picture book biographies together. Well, we'd done two. We'd done one about Julia Child, which was very loosely kind of based on her biography. And then we'd done one, which was more of a kind of formal biography of um, a fashion designer named Elsa Schiaparelli. And we were looking to do a, a kind of fulfill a second book contract with Harper Collins in the U.S. and Tundra in Canada. Um, for a biography. And we had lots of ideas. And the idea that we were really compelled with was the story of Gyo. Um or At least it was the one I was most compelled with at the time, because I, I realized that, like, I had never read anything about her. And so I did, you know, Google search, and I did some sleuthing, and I found very little about her. And eventually, I came across a mention of a community on an island off, um, Los Angeles called Terminal Island and the existence of a Japanese- American community there and somebody mentioned Gio Fujikawa and something that had happened prior to the internment. And anyway, to make a long story short, I realized it was her great uh, great nephew and so I um, contacted him and just said, you know I'm really curious about Gio's life and her story and um, would you happen to know anything about her And he said, well, it just so happens I'm like standing six feet away from her archive right now in Santa Monica. And so I started up this correspondence with um, her her great nephew, Danny Fujikawa, and eventually um, traveled to Los Angeles. Um, I went there twice, first by myself, and then the second time with Julie Morstad. And I looked through her archive and just kind of built the story from the ground up because I was able to like kind of look at her art, but also at some of the Um, interview her family and kind of do an oral history of their lives and their memories of her and also just you know what what had happened to them during the internment years and so it was really exciting actually I've never worked that way before with the kind of primary source material but it felt like it was kind of a mission like I just needed to know more and um, it felt like I wasn't kind of um, the challenges were different because I wasn't kind of re-spinning facts and history that already existed, I was kind of, I felt a lot more responsibility because I felt like I was telling the story for the first time. Um, And so that was both challenging and exciting. And uh, it was also very motivating because like uh, Julie and I were so privileged, like we had access to her family photographs, like her memos and notes to her family, cards, just like a lot of personal ephemera. And I just, I love research and I love archives. So it was just really a joy. And Julie, who's, like, always loved Gyo's uh, work and has kind of been influenced by her, was just, you know, in heaven looking at the original art. So, um, yeah, we worked differently than we had in other cases, but it was really fun and we really collaborated.
0: Was nothing else, has nothing else been written about Gyo or was this the first formal book about her and her life?
1: Yeah, so there's, this is the first formal book about her there was um there's one oral history interview with her in like a an e-book that is like i think it's called walt disney's artists or something but there's nothing there was nothing else until actually last year when a new yorker reporter decided to write about her and actually uh did an interview with me based on my research and so that was really exciting like i just felt i mean not exciting because she interviewed me but just exciting that somebody was writing about her um and so that that piece you can find in the new yorker um And other than that, no, there really hasn't been anything about her. So um, I'm hoping there'll be more. I I mean, I think there's so much to explore. Like there's just, she had such a long life and a picture book is such a brief, abbreviated form. Like I'd love to see somebody write something kind of longer about her. But no, not that I know of.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like because you had such this huge abundance of material to work with, like distilling it down into a picture book what was that process like
1: well it's always this is always especially with biographies like what i find is i kind of slosh around in the research for a while and then um the image i use is like you know when you're in a pond and it's like kind of silty and if you like really move a lot then the water gets really murky and you can't see the bottom So, and you know, when you're actually searching for something, sometimes you can kind of get frantic. And so at a certain point in my research, I just have to stop and just kind of stand still in that kind of sloshing water and let things settle. And so at that point, I can usually see what the central metaphor will be or kind of what the thread or through line will be. And so, you know, with the Schiaparelli book, it was the idea of blooming and flowers. And in this book, I really felt like the image of the page an empty page was the central idea was that she, you know and it starts with it began with a p- page uh, bright and beckoning because this is somebody who really like was a trailblazer like she really took an empty page and kind of rewrote the idea of how a story could be told by whom you know and for whom and so i really wanted to kind of take that idea of the page and use it both um as a kind of metaphor but also use it Kind of almost literally within the design of the book. So if you look at the American cover, is actually a picture of Geo peeling back a page to reveal this kind of parade of of children, you know, from diverse backgrounds. And so, and even in the Canadian version, like there's a lot of play with the page itself and the margins of the page, you know, and who's at the border of the page. And so, Julie and I really worked with that kind of idea and that metaphor of like how. What do you do when there's a certain template for how stories have been told for, you know, generations and you're trying to break that mold, which is what she really was trying to do. Um, And so we really want to work that metaphor into the storytelling itself.
0: Yeah, I was really there's one line that really caught me as I was reading it, it was something about uh, how things hadn't changed all that much. Like she was watching things change. There's that beautiful illustration that Julie did where it's all um, black and gray and she's crossing the street with the rainbow umbrella. And I just thought it really captured this idea of, of the single story and how she's really seemed to be pushing against that in her work. And I, I it was interesting how you, you captured that just with what you were saying, in terms of breaking the mold with how stories were told?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a line where I say, um, I think she says it to her pet poodle because she <laughs> she had these poodles that were her kind of like muses and companions. Um, she had a very iconoclastic life. Like she remained um, single. Uh, there's some speculation around her sexuality, but n- nothing confirmed. But just that she managed to live independently in New York City um, and support herself was quite a feat at that time. But so there's a line where she says, you know, a story can be anything you want it to be, essentially, like I'm kind of paraphrasing, but this idea that we don't need to tell stories the same way. And I think that's something that I really want to convey to children. Like, I think there's just so much possibility, even in terms of like, for me, picture books are so like kind of exciting, because there's a kind of radicalness to them, like you can really, there's just so much bending of form and so much playfulness. Um, and I feel like there's not as much adherence to this idea of um, tradition, especially among kind of modern picture book makers. And so I felt like her idea that a story could be anything you want it to be. is really important, like just content wise for children to appreciate that, but also uh, formally like that you can create anything you want. Like a, you could make, you know, a, Book that has no words, or you could make a book that um, you read upside down, or just the idea that we can really invent our own forms of narrative. And so, yeah, I mean, I think she really She obviously like was a bit more conventional in the way she told a story, but I think even the way she moved, for example, visually between black and white illustration and color, um, line work, and um, kind of broader shapes, like she was. She was quite modern in her sensibility, and I think that's why she's so interesting to so many contemporary artists, like, you know, everyone from Julie Morstad to Christian Robinson have cited her as an influence, that there's something kind of very ahead of its time when you look at her art and, and obviously the content of her stories. So, yeah, I think, I don't think I've answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, that's some, of the, some of the ideas I had in mind.
0: Yeah, and also I I think what I love so much about so many of your children's books is There's kind of this theme of, like, looking, of belonging, like, especially with Bloom and and this, and Gyo and uh, Virginia Woolf. But also, like, I love that the characters in the children's books are always so diverse and interesting, because I, I think it's important for kids to be able to see themselves in the characters on the page. Do you think about that when you approach different characters for your children's books?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's funny because I don't think it's like about when I approach it, I'm thinking of a like kind of drop down menu of diverse choices, like that I want to tick boxes. But I do think I'm really drawn to characters who kind of set the bar for what diversity actually means in the truest sense, which is that they were iconoclasts and they forged paths that showed that you could live a different way. So I mean, often I choose really strong women, um, women who are seen as controversial in their time, like um, either, like, you know, Virginia Woolf is certainly, um, you know, a a mold breaker in the way she was a modernist and, like, wrote in a very different way than what people were used to at the time, but also people like Elsa Schiaparelli who worked in fashion but was seen as ugly, you know what I mean? Like that idea of women who are not necessarily seen as one thing or challenge this kind of idea of being able to reduce themselves to kind of one archetype arcs or archetype of womanhood so yeah I, I'm really drawn to people like that just like really fiercely independent women so you know Maria Callas is another woman I've written about so people who just really um were challenging in their time but kind of remain challenging I think mm-hmm.
0: um, I really loved the inclusion too of uh of Miss Cole and Miss Blum and and that important kind of mentorship in in uh, Gio's story I thought that was really beautiful to include that
1: oh that's nice yeah it's so great like in the archive there were like these notes from her teacher and her yearbook and so just to kind of figure out that thread and then have like kind of realize that they actually sponsored her through school so, you know, they they actually, like, really mentored her. Like, they really supported her. And I, I, I was thinking those cases of, like, what could have happened, like, that what if that hadn't happened? Like, she probably would have gone on to uh, work with her family and the kind of migrant uh, farm worker kind of work that they did or, like, worked as a seamstress alongside her mother doing scrap work or whatever. But it's just to me, it's just so incredible that there's these moments which are kind of sliding door moments where... A person gets an opportunity and can realize their potential, and um, so that seemed like really important to mention. Um, mm-hmm. And that she did with the support of other people. That you know, even when somebody's fiercely independent, usually and you know, seen as a trailblazer, they usually don't do it on their own. Like they do it with support. So, yeah.
0: Well, maybe I wanted to transition to um, your working relationship with Julie and how that started because you two have worked together now on a few books so how did you guys begin your work together?
1: Uh, So we started off with, well I always loved Julie's work, I just, I think the first book I had by her was called Milk Teeth and it was a really small book, I think a small edition from Drawn and Quarterly and she just, her sensibility just spoke to me, I just, it was really quirky and kind of weird and and I just thought it was so imaginative like there are just whole worlds of stories in each illustration you know even though they weren't like embedded in a narrative I could just see like so much storytelling and so when I was had written Julia Child my editor you know saw that there was a, an affinity like that she saw how much I liked Julie's work but also saw I think that Julie had such a great way of capturing children like such a I don't know like I guess respectful way almost of capturing children, like seeing them as kind of autonomous, um, like curious, mischievous people. And so I think it was such a good fit for Julia Child and she captured them, the character so well. And we had such a nice time, like we didn't work together that closely on that book. Like it was kind of a bit separate, um, but at the end of the book we had the chance to meet and we just had a real bond. And And I think we just realized that we really liked each other, but also liked working with each other. And so we just started to brainstorm ideas for another project. And so the second book we did together, Bloom, was actually generated with the two of us. And we kind of grew it from the ground up. And we then approached publishers with it, saying, like, we want to work together and this is our project. And that's not very customary in publishing. Um, And so we were really lucky and we got a few offers and we ended up with a nice uh, two-book deal that allowed us to kind of think about working together for a while. And I just, to me, it's just been a really exciting collaboration because I feel like we just talk all the time on the phone and we kind of go back and forth and there's just a lot of problem solving we'll do like with the text or with the image. And it just feels very companioned, like that we're always a sounding board for each other and that we kind of, I don't know. I just, I feel like she helps me make the text kind of leaner and I can. I have so much trust in her, the power of her images to tell the story that I feel just like there's a real nice synergy. So it's just, it, I just really enjoy that collaboration.
0: Well, and I think that came across even as you said, it's hard to read this story without the images. So you, the collaboration is so kind of intertwined that that book really needs to be in your hands to, to enjoy it.
1: Yeah, and she's so, she, I mean, she's such a master of like, pacing and like just even the placement and we worked with John Martz on the placement of the text and there's just a rhythm to her work that I love and um, you know going from spot illustrations to kind of full um, spreads and just there's a real musicality to it and so it's a real joy like I learned so much about storytelling just from observing the way she works visually and that to me is like really exciting like just when you can take lessons back to your own practice um, and learn more about the page turn and just um, the humor in her illustrations, like there's some moments even in this book where there's just it's just so sweet. And so like there's just really funny little moments that aren't like, you know, highlighted or spotlit. But if you pay attention, you can find them. And I just I love that attention to detail. Yeah,
0: there's the, the one illustration of um, Gio's mother burning all their things that when I turned the page to that, it was kind of one of those like heart stopping illustrations. It really captures that moment.
1: That was yeah, That's an intense moment in Gio's life, but also, like, on the page. Like, it was, it was a, a struggle because, you know, the internment is a difficult subject, and we didn't want to kind of shy away from the tragedy of that moment because it was really tragic, and for Gio, it was really um, a watershed moment. Like, she really – she wrote about it. She talked about it. Like, the fact that her family was interned and she was allowed to be free, you know, in quotes, on the East Coast – I think was a heartbreak for her. And she talked about visiting them and we wanted to capture all that stuff, but, you know, maybe not stay there for too long, like not kind of, you know, hammer it in too hard, but just to allow, to really have kind of faith in the child reader, to be able to go go through that and then to see, you know, how this was part of building her personality and who she ended up being and what she stood for. Like this was, really a pivotal moment and so I thought Julie did such a beautiful job like it's that's an intense image like you said right and but there's just such a kind of poetry to the way she did it and also I mean it is like a really sad moment but it's also an incredibly um, powerful moment because it's about a mother taking control and saying I'm not going to let this happen this way like I'm going to take control of this story at this moment the
0: thing I think I really liked about both the illustration and the writing in the book was the way it left space for like a child-parent interaction around the story, because I think that's sometimes something we forget about children's books, is there's often an adult reading the story to a child, so the ability for maybe the kids to ask questions as they're turning the page and seeing that really powerful image, there was definitely space for that to happen do you do you think about that kind of pacing i guess it, it would be with the the layout of the story as well on the page
1: yeah i mean i do think about that i think that this book in particular like really uh warrants some like adult conversation and we you know i didn't want to stuff it with facts like there are a lot of things that are kind of alluded to you know i don't go into heavy description of the you know the executive order that was passed that you know that began the internment but i you know i'll say something like i'll I'll kind of approach it more lyrically but then at the very back of the book there is a timeline that has kind of more exhaustive factual information and my hope was just that children might be intrigued or curious and that their parents might be able to explain some of this to them more um in an age-appropriate way but maybe in more detail later on so yeah, I, it is a bit like it is a nonfiction book, but I wanted it to have a kind of lyricism. And so there's definitely space around the facts. And I thought, I'm, I mean, I hope that there's conversation that happens in those spaces. Um, I hope it invites that. Mm-hmm.
0: What was Gio's family's response to the book?
1: They've just been so supportive. Like they, they loved it. They like, they love, They they've kind of been so surprised by it I was surprised by their reaction, to be honest, because from the moment I contacted them and said, you know, expressed interest in telling Yo's story, they were, they were like, "What, Aunt Yo?" <laughs> they were like, they, and they have this archive that's basically sitting in like, um, what are they called? Those like kind of rubbermaid boxes, like in a basement. To be honest, like Julie and I are a bit concerned for some of the items because they're not, you know, being treated in an archival way, and I'm worried about their preservation and. Um, so that's an ongoing conversation. But the point is, is that they really didn't realize how important Gio was. They knew that she was an illustrator and they knew that, her, you know, her books had done reasonably well. Um, but I don't think they realized that she had a cultural legacy. And so they were surprised, I think, that some stranger from another country was investigating their their aunt's kind of body of work and history. And I think they were kind of delighted you know, they were all delighted to tell, tell personal stories about Geo and remember things and stuff. Um, but I think it was really kind of nice and flattering for them to realize that their aunt was so important in this world of of picture books and children's literature. Um, I'm still hoping that somebody does something eventually, like maybe an exhibition at the Eric Carle Museum or something, that it, something happens um, with her work because I do think there's a lot to share still and we shared a little bit but there's, there's so much more to share and I hope that people you know become more curious about her. That was our that was our hope really. Was not to be exhaustive or definitive but just to kind of open the door to questions about her and maybe some future kind of ex- excavation. So uh that was our our kind of dream. Would you do an adult book about Gio? Uh I don't think so. Like I think I mean I would love to see somebody do something, but I think yeah, I don't, I don't really see myself doing it, but I was very excited when, the, when Sarah Larson at The New Yorker um, wanted to tell her story kind of for adults. So maybe she'll do it. <laughs> you can
0: pass the torch. I disappointed her.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are you working on anything right now or just trying to adjust to new normal?
1: Um, well, I'm, I have actually, like, I've been in a puddle of a book for a while. So, like, what I described as a sloshing around stage. I'm working on a book for adults right now. And so I'm, like, kind of in in the earliest stages of it. But it's um, it's been keeping me going. I have a few hours a day to write. And I have a few picture books that are kind of in the works. I have um, and some really nice collaborations. So I'm excited about those.
0: Thanks so much for Keo for being on the podcast. And thanks to you for listening and supporting Writing the Coast. It means so 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 much that you take the time to listen. If you're interested in finding out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Next time on the podcast, you'll hear my conversation with Sabina Khan, whose book The Love and Lies of Roxana Ali is nominated for the Sheila A. Yegoff Children's Literature Prize. Until next time, I hope you make a dent in your to-read pile and enjoy some sunshine.